When I arrived down there, it was shortly before 3am this morning. The fire was still burning um, and, in fact, was uh, very well alight until I left at about half past four this morning. Uh, fire said that they did expect the fire to burn for some time, for, for several hours, um, as they were still trying to get it under control. They said it had reached the, the roofing area. Almost two weeks have passed now since the terrible news that lives had been lost at the Loafers Lodge Hostel in Wellington in a blaze witnessed that night by RNZ News producer Denise Garland. And in the confusion and chaos of that night, a local fire chief told the media it was a once-in-a-decade fire, which gave people some idea of the seriousness of it, but somehow it still didn't quite adequately convey the horror of it. But what does is that even now, we still don't know for sure how many people died there that night or even how many were in the building and how many were accounted for or not. And it was only last Tuesday, more than a week later, that police formally released the names of the first three victims. In Parliament, Greens co-leader James Shaw last week said it was time for questions. Uh, What kind of country are we uh, where those people have so few options in life Uh, but to live in substandard accommodation uh, with a reasonable chance of lethality. What kind of country are we where we would would not raise a building code because we're worried we might be accused of issuing a war on renters, on landlords? I I think what kind of country are we where, you know, our our firefighters uh, lack or are at risk of not showing up with the most basic of equipment to be able to uh, fight these uh, kinds of events? So those questions do need to be answered, uh, I think, uh, in the fullness of time. And asking those kind of questions of people in power is also, of course, the job of the media. Now, since the Loafers Lodge fire, we have learned a lot from reporters who have dug into it, some of it pretty worrying. For example, on the front page of Wellington's Daily The Post last Monday, Tom Hunt reported that Loafers Lodge had just one working ground floor exit after the main entrance was locked shut due to damage in the days before the fire. And we've also learned that Loafers Lodge is just one of a growing network of hostels, motels and boarding houses housing some of New Zealand's most vulnerable and poorest people. But we don't even know how many of them there are. A parliamentary inquiry report into boarding houses cited MB and fire service databases, which suggested there were between 500 and 550 boarding houses, but that was done back in 2014. According to Stuff reporter Steve Kilgallen, the $300,000 cost of creating a national register was cited as a reason why it hadn't been done back in 2012. Journalist Bernard Hickey said the Loafers Lodge fire exposed our twin crises of inequality and housing, subjects he writes a lot about. Bernard Hickey said that he lived not far from Loafers Lodge for years and often wondered who lived there and what it was like to live there. But... Like most, I didn't have much insight into the nature and danger of life inside such a place. And Bernard Hickey's not alone in that among our journalists. But since the tragedy, our media have been talking to the people who are usually invisible in our media. For example, Loafers Lodge resident Chris told The Guardian's New Zealand reporter Tess McClure this. I've read online and on social media saying that this was a place for the vulnerable. I don't consider myself a vulnerable person. It's just at the moment, there's a struggle with housing. And Loafers Lodge catered for people who couldn't buy their own homes in the capital or even rent them from other New Zealanders who own them. 
after National Party leader Christopher Luxon this week signalled a rethink of his party's support for changes to allow more and denser housing to be built, News Talk ZB's Heather Duplessy Allen said it was smart politics. How good is it that National is walking away from the stupid housing density rules? I mean, they should never have even promoted this idea in the first place. Though her panel guest at the time, political pundit Ben Thomas, cited Loafer's Lodge when he told Heather Duplessy Allen this. Well, look, I think it was a good policy. Um, oh, we, do need, we, need, we need more houses. We oh, don't have ben. enough houses. But, it, well, Ben, it's not a good policy because normal people who own houses are not going to vote for this nonsense. We, we have nurses living in places like Loafer's Lodge. We need more houses. Yes, but the nurse, when she owns a house, or he, is not going to want to vote for us. Yeah, you don't have to tell me about the politics about it. I, I, I worked on the Wayne Brown campaign for mayor. I, I know very much how, how the good burgers of Auckland feel about uh, their neighbours building high, high properties. Elsewhere on News Talk ZB this week, the local host in Wellington, Nick Mills, asked the Wellington City Missioner Murray Edridge how accommodation can become healthier, safer and more affordable in Wellington, especially for those who are most vulnerable. And the property developer Ian Castles added this. You know, if we keep growing poverty the way we are, then we're all stuffed. There's no, there's no um, quarantine. You can't live away from that and ignore it. We, we are as healthy as our society is, and if it's not working, it's not working. Like, and it's definitely not working. No, right it's, it's not working at all. Like, it's, it's, um, we're just people are coming off the back of the train, and just we're just ignoring it. And also this week, an episode of the daily podcast The Detail devoted an entire episode to the safety of denser housing and pointed out that RNZ's Phil Pennington had investigated this for RNZ. So what happens is that the government goes, we want to intensify housing to uh, meet the housing crisis, and they pass that all under urgency, right? So the floodgates were opened, but it seems as though they didn't really check downstream what was going on in terms of fire. We still have to determine how much official advice there was about fire, but what I'm hearing is that there wasn't a lot. Now, the day after the fire at Loafers Lodge last week, RNZ's Phil Pennington told Morning Report what some of the firefighters had told him after the horror of confronting that blaze. One of them said to me last night, I wonder if this is our Grenfell moment. A reference to the Grenfell Tower disaster in which 72 people died in a fire in London in 2017. Now, the circumstances of that were very different to Loafers Lodge, but both disasters raised big questions about the adequacy of social housing provision and the response, or lack of it, to safety concerns of people living there and the capability of the emergency response. And in the UK, the role of the media, both before and after the Grenfell Tower disaster, has also been examined in the years since then. You have the truth! Right, you didn't come here when people were telling you that was the sound of the veteran British Channel 4 news presenter John Snow being confronted by angry Grenfell Tower residents when he turned up there to report on the tragedy back in 2017. Now later that year, John Snow told a conference of media people this about that moment. We are all in this hall major players. We can accuse the political classes for their failures, and we do, but we're guilty of them ourselves. We are too far removed from those who lived their lives in Grenfell and who, across the country, now live on amid combustible cladding, the lack of sprinklers, the absence of centralised fire alarms and more revealed by the Grenfell Tower. 
Well, some who did know about that and did reveal it before and after the fire and are still doing it now are the journalists at a specialist magazine and website called Inside Housing. Among them was Sophie Barnes, who said that they tried to get the national media interested in the problem of fire safety and social housing long before the Grenfell Tower disaster. She said what was reported as a horrific one-off at Grenfell Tower was actually a horrific example of a much wider problem. This almost kind of fixation really on getting rid of these regulations, too much regulation, it stifles innovation. And when it comes to housing and safety and fire safety, it seems crazy. Well, the sixth anniversary of the Grenfell Tower tragedy is coming up next week, and Sophie Barnes is now an investigative reporter for one of the UK's biggest national newspapers, The Daily Telegraph. But her colleague Peter Apps is still at Inside Housing, he's now its deputy editor, and he's still covering the inquiry into Grenfell Tower, which isn't expected to end until 2024. Last year, Peter Apps published Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen, a book described by the Times in London as a forensic indictment of the construction industry and its regulators. So what advice does Peter Apps have for our media trying to find the true meaning in a tragedy here, which could be a warning of others to come? You get a kind of low probability event like this, or what I presume has happened in Wellington, but those come from a set of circumstances which make it possible. But it's likely that If that's possible in that one block, it's likely to be possible in others as well. It has to ask questions about the systems of prevention and protection that are supposed to prevent these sorts of incidents happening and and how robust they are, certainly in the UK, as as that kind of has been unpicked by by what we've written, what others have written, and by the, the inquiry, you see this failure to to maintain basic protections at a number of levels and once you've got that then you can have a low probability event like this take place sometimes people sort of say that in the 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 days and weeks immediately after an event like this then you you know you you can't politicize it you've got to just sort of it's a tragedy you've got to mourn first and then talk about the reasons afterwards and I, i think that that's a mistake to be honest from the media's perspective because there's a short period when people are listening and when they care and that that short window will close and if you're not talking about the things that need to change at that time you're going to find that you're talking about them at a time when nobody's listening to you. Your colleague Sophie Barnes for example did epic um, requests for official information writing to hundreds of local authorities for the same information is that the level of inquiry you have to go to to really build up a picture of where the risks are and what's working and what isn't? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know what sort of freedom of information laws exist in New Zealand, but we do have a structure in the UK by which you can get information out of public bodies. It's quite laborious and uh, building up data is is important in proving this, this idea that we were talking about just now, that this isn't just a one-off and actually is a product of an environment where lots of homes are unsafe, it's, a, it's an important role the media can play. Well, in the wake of the, the tragedy here in Wellington, we've now learned that there are more than 500 such boarding houses or hostels around the country, but we've discovered no register, no common set of standards. What advice would you give to our journalists that want to look into this and really inform the public what is out there in terms of social housing? A sadly familiar story, really. I mean, the, the, the history of fire disasters in the UK going back a long time before Grenfell, they, they do always seem to take place in homes for the, the, the people with the least choice about where they live. 
Yeah, there's a fascinating excerpt from a recent Inside Housing piece I found online about a building that you'd reported on earlier as, as not being up to scratch. And when Inside Housing visited the buildings later, there were some signs of improvement, but cigarette butts litter the windows. There's the smell of tobacco smoke in the air. At least one of the doors from the drying room to the main corridor doesn't close by itself. Panel doors on electricity boxes are made of tatty plywood, big gaps in the walls. So... Would you advise journalists to do this, to say, actually, we will go there, places that say they're going to be improved, we will go there, we will check? Yeah, absolutely, if you, if you can, if you can get down there. I mean, like, there, there's often that gap between the, you, you'll go to the, the landlord of the organisation at a press office and they'll give you assurances about how seriously they take safety and you can test that and speak to the people who are in those buildings and, and ask them how they feel and whether when they complain about things it's, it's taken seriously or not. I think that that's absolutely a job that the media can do. Yeah, and when the Grenfell disaster happened, some of the media were a bit shocked to find residents really resented them and felt that they hadn't been interested in them before, possibly had literally ignored newsworthy things they were trying to say about the safety of their buildings. John Snow, for example, veteran broadcaster on Channel 4, was really shocked by this and as later said, look, it was proof to me if we needed it that journalists are disconnected from the way that people in social housing live. Do you agree with him and his conclusion about that? I mean, I think in the immediate aftermath of the fire, the community were obviously in in such a state of trauma and devastation and, you know, the UK media is pretty ferocious, will pursue stories and doesn't always treat people very well. That's going to create hostility towards the media in general, you know. But I, I think sometimes these kind of differences between people can be overstated. When I've spoken to people who live in buildings, not just Grenfell, but other buildings, social housing blocks with um, fire safety issues, I find that for the most part they, they want people to listen to them and want people to talk and understand. And I think you find, you know, actually your background and your, your outlook on life is maybe a lot less different from them than you think. Probably, yeah, we don't, as a society, pay enough attention to people who are struggling. And and actually, when you kind of go there as a human being and and you want to kind of understand and listen, I'm sure the sort of journalists listening to this who've done kind of similar things in New Zealand would say the same. I I read that the the final report of the Grenfell Tower inquiry won't actually be published until 2024, seven years after the event. Yeah, I mean, it's taken an extraordinarily long time. There's still hope that there's going to be criminal prosecutions, um, but none of those will come until the inquiry report has been published and been analysed by prosecutors, and then the criminal trial start, and they, they, they would take a long time as well. So it, it means the people who've suffered the fire are kind of locked into this decades-long legal processes before they get closure. You know, in some ways, the inquiry's done a good job of exposing this story of, you know, systemic failure. But six, seven years is, is an extraordinarily long time to have to wait. And, and finally, uh, Peter, we don't have in New Zealand a, a publication quite like Inside Housing, just this real focus on this one area with expert journalists, which comes into its own when something like Grenfell happens. But seeing as we don't have that in New Zealand, would you urge media companies here to at least put a, a senior reporter on this and allow them to follow the story? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things I'd say, given what you're saying about this fire, we had a fire in 2009 in the UK, a, a building called Lacknell House, which killed four, six people, three of them children. And the story wasn't really followed up, to be honest. But the the issues that caused the Lacanal House fire were so similar 
and it's how I open my book, Show Me the Bodies, with, with an account of the Lacanore House fire. It's supposed to kind of make people think they're reading about Grenfell, and then they realise they're actually reading about a fire that happened eight years before. If journalists in the UK had been able to get under the skin of that Lacanore House fire and, and expose what, what the, the, the lessons were, we might not have had the second catastrophe, which was much worse. You know, as bad as what's happened in Wellington is, you now have the opportunity to prevent that happening again or prevent it happening in an even worse fashion. That's something that the media can contribute. Yes, absolutely. Newspapers should look at uh, giving the reporter the space to stay with this story over over the next few months and even years as the the situation and the details emerge because they, they, they won't have yet. It will take time. If the media is patient enough, there's probably a story there that matters a great deal. That was Peter Epps, the deputy editor of the UK journal Inside Housing, who has for six years now been covering the Grenfell Tower tragedy and the official investigations and the inquiry into it, which is still ongoing. And Peter is also the author of the recently published account of all that called Show Me the Bodies, How We Let Grenfell Happen.